0: Good morning, 11 o'clock. Welcome to ACF Church. My name is Stuart. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd also like to take just a moment and welcome those who are watching online or joining us today. Can we welcome them as well? We are today wrapping up our series called Home Wreckers, where we have been looking at uh, some of the major issues that can undermine and sidetrack our relationships. And today we are going to continue that Conversation by looking at the issue of sexual integrity and sexual brokenness. Uh, in a world where uh, we are just ravaged by sin, we are all affected in some way by sexual brokenness. And I do want to give you uh, just a heads up. While we, we think this message is for everyone, I want to let you parents know that it is a PG-13 message, so this is your fair warning, right? So I want to ha- let you know that we have the privilege of hearing from Nick Stumbo uh, this morning. And Nick is the executive director at a ministry called Pure Desire. Uh, they came up this weekend, and they uh, delivered an amazing conference uh, Friday, Saturday. Uh, mo- many of you were there with us. Uh, we have been blessed, and really, uh, many many guys have started, guys and girls, started their journey in freedom uh, this weekend, and I'm so excited to be able to introduce him to you. He is a father. Uh, he is a husband. He is an all-around awesome dude, and I want to welcome him to the stage. Would you help me welcome Nick Stumbo this morning?
1: Good morning, ACF. Great to be with you today. Hey, in the first service, there were baby dedications. I almost missed my own introduction because I was, I was waiting for the babies to get prayed for, but that you missed it in the first service, all those babies. Uh, my first time in Alaska on this trip, great to be here. Uh, I grew up in Montana and Wyoming, so I just love being able to look up at mountains and snow on the mountains, and it Feels a little bit like home there. The other thing I'm loving about Alaska is being able to say, you know, I got up before dawn and started working and getting stuff done. And that's pretty easy to do right now. (laughs) Although I hear if we come back in the summer, it gets a little bit more challenging to get up before dawn. So uh, we've really enjoyed the time here, being able to be a part of the conference yesterday. And a number of you attended that, as well as people from other churches. And I'm so appreciative of the message that ACF is sending by hosting a conference about sexual integrity and dealing with our sexual brokenness, because that's really not the common approach in churches in America today. Uh, A survey suggests that less than 10% of churches in America have a plan or any kind of specific ministry or group to help men and women who are struggling with sexual brokenness. And in the church, by and large, sexuality can become the taboo topic that We just don't really know how to address, and so everyone on their own tries to figure things out, but that's not working. And so I love the way that ACF says we're going to be a place where it's okay not to be okay, where it's okay to talk and to get help, and that all of us can recognize that we are sexual beings. And sexual brokenness impacts our lives, and so we need to be able to be real and to find the hope and the freedom that God has for all of us. And so it's been a great weekend for that. And we just want to dive into God's Word a little bit this morning uh, to go deeper with this topic with all of you. Well, do you remember when we used to watch television? I, I don't mean YouTube or Hulu or Netflix or Disney Plus. Any any others jump on the Disney Plus bandwagon this week? Uh, my family and I are all over that, enjoying the new Star Wars series. And but anyway, I mean, before all that, when you would just turn on the TV and change channels to see what was on. Well, back in those good old days, uh, one of the favorite shows for my wife and all was uh, my wife and I uh, was a program called The Biggest Loser. Now, on The Biggest Loser, in case you're not real familiar with it, they would bring contestants to a health ranch. And these were men and women that, over the course of their life, had become incredibly overweight. And they were there to be in this challenge to see who could be the biggest loser. And we were really captured by these stories of life transformation. Because a man or a woman would come, and week in and week out, they'd be exercising and meeting with health coaches, And our favorite moment inevitably would be a point in the season, about nine, ten weeks in, when they would bring the contestant up on stage, and they would do this weigh-in, and then on this giant screen next to them, they would bring up a picture of what they had looked like when they first arrived at the ranch. And it was always mind-blowing to us because even though we'd been watching every week, you would forget what they had looked like. And week in and week out, you wouldn't notice the incremental changes they were going through. But when they would bring up this before and after picture, it was mind-blowing. It would look at times like the person had taken off a fat suit that they were wearing and an entirely new person had emerged. And that transformation journey was always fun to watch. Uh, I have a couple of coworkers, some guys on our team that have been on their own health journeys, and both of them have lost over 90 pounds now as they've uh, been doing the work they're doing. That's one of, if you put that together, that's one of me that they have lost. And it's really incredible to see that transformation. But if you listen to them talk about their journey, or if you listen to contestants on The Biggest Loser, one of the things that you quickly pick up on is that their transformation wasn't just about eating differently. It wasn't only about you know, avoiding sugar and eating more carrots. It was really something much deeper, that they had to change the way they thought, the way they processed life, that it was a holistic kind of approach to change. And that's a, a principle that I want to start with this morning. As we think about a transformation journey, is this idea that lasting transformation is less about stopping a behavior and more about changing the way you do life? That lasting transformation is less about stopping the behavior and more about changing the way we do life. And I think nowhere is this principle more necessary to think through than in the area of our human sexuality. Because when it comes to our sexual brokenness, there are so many behaviors or choices or decisions that we just feel like, I wish I could stop, I wish that wouldn't happen anymore. If I could just change this behavior, everything would be okay. (coughs) Excuse me. But if we want to experience deep change, there has to be more than simply addressing a behavior. And if there's anywhere in our world today that we see the need for deep transformation, I think it's in our sexuality. Research and data doesn't paint a pretty picture of what's happening in our world right now. 65% of men in the church would say they struggle with some kind of unwanted sexual behavior in their lives. But it's not just a man's problem, a full 30% of women would say, me too. There are behaviors or choices I'm making that I wish I could stop, and yet I seem to keep going back to them. It's not a man's problem, it's not a woman's problem, this is a people problem. A full 50% of pastors would say that at some point in their ministry, they have struggled or are struggling with pornography. Young adults, those under the age of 25, would say that a a full 64% of them are exposed to pornography on a weekly basis. 56% of divorces in our country are saying that the Internet behavior of one of the spouses is a driving factor in their divorce. (coughs) And sexual abuse and sex trafficking are skyrocketing. We look around our culture and we say, Something has to change. Something has to give. There's a need for deep and lasting transformation. You see, the clear reality is that while we are all sexual beings, we have all been impacted by sexual brokenness, whether by the choices we've made or choices of others that have impacted us. And yet one of the privileges and the joys I have at working at Pure Desire and being the director of this ministry is the stories that I get to hear Almost every day, but for sure every week, is people who email or call or walk into my office and say, we are not the people we used to be. There is a change that has taken place in our life. And what they begin to describe is so much more than just stopping a behavior. It's this deep transformation that has led to a kind of freedom and peace and joy that they never thought was possible. And in some ways, I would think these stories sound too good to be true. You would wonder if if they're just making it up, except for the fact that I experienced a similar story in my own life. I had been a pastor for 10 years and been married for 10 years when my on-again, off-again struggle with pornography finally bubbled over to the point that it nearly ended my marriage. I had stumbled into pornography like many young men do at a sleepover at someone's house, being exposed to some things that I'd never seen. And and suddenly sexual things in my life were both secretive and shameful. I knew it didn't feel safe to tell mom and dad. I thought they'd be angry. And so you just, you start to figure it out on your own. And as I grew and the struggle grew, so did the sense of shame and secrecy. And so I did what the church had taught me to do, and if you grew up in church, it's maybe the solution that you were offered, that if there's any kind of struggle in our life that we can't seem to get rid of, then we do what James chapter 5, a little letter in the New Testament says, that to confess your sins one to another, and you will be healed. Well, I, I wanted to be healed, and so I became what I jokingly refer to as a serial confessor. I would confess whenever the opportunity seemed right. And so to my high school youth pastor, and then at summer youth camp, and to the dorm floor assistant at college, and eventually to the dean of student affairs, to my fiancé, to my first senior pastor, to my elder board, it was this idea of if I could just get out the sin and the problem and confess it and be prayed for, I would be healed. And in all those occasions, there were wonderful people that offered God's grace And love and mercy, only they didn't know what a pathway to healing looked like. And so I would go out thinking, okay, that was it. I've dealt with it. Only in the effort to change the behavior, nothing on the inside had really been transformed. And so after 10 years of this binge-purge relationship, my wife was at a breaking point. What she said to me in that period was, Nick, it's not that I hate you, but I hate the way this makes me feel. And because it keeps happening, I don't know if it will ever change, and I don't know if I can stay around the pain. And those kind of words began to scare me, and so I I did what I think many of us do in a situation like that. I, I began to build the barriers and the guardrails in my life very high to try to keep it away so that I would never struggle again. Only the problem with that solution is believing the problem is out there when really so much of the problem is in here. And I knew I was only a a moment away from being in the wrong place, at the wrong time, with the wrong motivations, and I could fall again. And it scared me to death because I didn't know any other way. But it was then by God's grace that we were introduced to Pure Desire Ministries and led into a process that wasn't just about changing behavior, but beginning to understand what was driving these deeper issues. That what were the things that had become patterns in my life and internal processes in my brain and in my heart that needed to be addressed so that the outcome of pornography could change. And so this morning, I want to share with you some of what I believe is God's process or his pathway for all of us that leads to lasting transformation based on what I've seen in my life in the lives of many who have been impacted by the ministry, but most importantly, what I see God telling us in his eternal word. And so I want you to wrestle with me this morning around this question of how does this kind of life transformation actually take place? How can you and I experience a deep life transformation in our sexuality? No matter what we're struggling with or dealing with, we can see today that hope is possible. So if you brought a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Uh, If you're pulling up an app on your phone, you're welcome to do that as well. I'll be reading out of the ESV translation, and we'll begin in verse 33 of Romans chapter 11. Now, uh, Romans is a fantastic book. It was written by a man named Paul, who was writing a letter of encouragement and theology to a church in the city of Rome. Yes, henceforth the name Romans. Really brilliant terminology there. And he wanted uh, this church to understand all that God had done for them. And many theologians say it's it's some of the richest and deepest theology about God in all of the New Testament. As he he describes his sovereignty, his wisdom, his will, his plans. And as he wraps up several pages of this discussion, these are Paul's words (coughs) in Romans chapter 11. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable, there's a great word for you to use this week, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So, so Paul looks at, at all that God has done, and he says, he's so amazing, you can't search his ways, you can't figure out everything he does, he's an amazing, awesome God, we couldn't even hope to pay him back for all that he's given to us, and then this powerful, uh, succinct little statement, he says, for from him, and through him, and to him, are all things, now, one of the great things you get to do when you study to be a pastor, when you go to Bible college and seminary, is they require you to take all kinds of biblical languages, which means I got to sit through a lot of years of Greek. And when I looked at the Greek for this passage, I really wanted to understand what that little phrase, all things, meant in the original Greek. And do you know what all things means in the Greek? The wording there says, all things, you too could take biblical Greek and learn this amazing wisdom. But but here's my point, all things is all things. And far too many people have inadvertently disconnected their spirituality from their sexuality. And over here is God, and faith, and worship, and Jesus, and the church, and, and discipleship, and scripture, and that all seems good, and well, and normal, but then over here is, is my sexuality, and there's desires, and there's hormones, and there's, there's longing, and there's lust, and, there, and it just it feels a little uh, messy, and uncontrolled, and different, and, and it's hard to imagine how could this area of my spirituality, my faith in God, connect to this, and so we just Inadvertently divide the two and think, well, over here I worship God and follow Jesus and listen to the Bible, but here, I don't know, I just kind of do what seems best. But if all things means all things, here's the point, then your sexuality and all that stuff that you deal with and it feels messy and complicated and, and a little out of control, you know what? God understands. Because what we need to start with this morning is a remembering or a recognition that our sexuality comes from God. And tragically, far, many, far too many people think that God himself is maybe a little bit skittish about talking about sex, or maybe he's even embarrassed by it. Like somehow we would bring our issues to him and he'd be like, Oh my goodness, what did you do? Or I, how, how, I can't imagine that. And yet God is the author of sex. Now, now has our world and sin and and the ways of man corrupted it? Well, sure, but, but this is God's idea in its origin. And if all things come from him, if all things are through him and for him, then we need to start at this place where we recognize God's goodness. That in God's creation of you and me as sexual beings and giving the gift of sex to be for a man and a woman in marriage, that he wasn't confused or uncertain of what it would lead to, that God has a good plan and that he is for us in our sexuality. Have you ever stopped to think about that? That when it comes to your sexuality and those drives or urges or desires that you can't always figure out, that God isn't apart from it over here waiting for you to, to come out of that and clean up your act so you can be with Him. No, God is over here with you in it, and He is for you, and He is helping, and He is right there because it's His gift to us. So, could we reconnect in understanding that, that our sexuality comes from God and He is good? in the middle of it. And if we can start there, then we can go into what Paul has to say next, because he really begins to unpack what does it look like to live out of this goodness of God in our lives. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He writes this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and that's brothers in a general way for all people, and this isn't just a passage for men. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul here begins to describe worship. He says, if, if this is who God is, and if all things come from him, and, and he's so amazing and wise and has given us so much, then what is our right response to him? And he says, our worship is to give our bodies, to give our life to him. The way I would phrase this is Paul saying our right response to God is to decide who's calling the shots. That when it comes to our life, when it comes to our bodies, and when it comes to how we will use our sexuality, we have to make a decision about whose way will be first or who gets to call the shots Because either God will, and we will attempt to pursue his goodness for us, or we will. And we will gravitate towards what seems best to us, or feels good, or seems right in the moment. And those two directions are incompatible with one another. What that means is we can't simultaneously do things our way and God's way. We have to make a decision about who's calling the shots. And Paul uses a really great illustration of this, something that would have really connected with them in the first century, but that might be a little more foreign to us. So I want to talk a bit about it when he says that we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. You see, a sacrifice to someone in the first century was a very tangible thing, where they would take a, a little bit of their grain or the olive oil they had harvested, or maybe even one of their animals, and they would bring that actual physical thing to a real place, to the temple or the sanctuary, and then they would take that little bit of grain or olive oil or an animal, and they would set it on an altar and say, God, I am dedicating, I am giving this to you, and they would take their hands off of it. They would recognize that this is something, this grain, this oil, this animal, it's something I could use for myself. I could spend it on my family and use it for our good. But in this act of worship, I'm bringing it to you. I'm laying it before you. And I'm taking my hands off to say, God, this is now yours. And that's the picture that Paul is giving us of what we're to do with our lives And not just our our souls or our spirits in kind of a disembodied, you know, metaphorical way. He's saying literally your physical body is meant to be like that sacrifice. That we would bring our bodies to the altar of God and leave it there and take our hands off to say, God, my act of worship, the way I worship you, is to give you my life, to give you my body and say it's yours. Do with it as you will. And if you look, you would note that at the beginning of the verse, Paul says, I appeal to you. Which really, another one in the Greek here, that if we could look into it, you'd see that Paul is using some of the strongest verbiage available to him in the Greek. A lot of other translations use the phrase, beg or plead. It's this deep appeal saying, please do this. Which begs the question, why does Paul have to beg? Why does he have to plead and beg to offer our bodies? And I think the reason is because the truth for you and I is this doesn't come easily. It's not our natural response to take our physical life and body and say, God, it's yours and take my hands off. No, we'd we'd like to leave at least one hand on it or maybe both and say, well, God, I I trust you in a lot of places. But when when your way doesn't really make sense or what you want me to do doesn't feel right, well, then I'm going to do what I want. And so Paul pleads with us, and he begs, and he appeals in the deepest way to say, bring your body, bring yourself to God, the one from whom all things come. All things are from him and through him and for him. Bring that body to God and step back and say, Lord, it's yours. And whatever you want, I'm doing it your way. Have you decided in your life who calls the shots? Because not making a decision is not an option. You realize that, right? Like, it's not possible to just not decide, because if we don't decide, we have decided that I'm still calling the shots. That's why this is an act of worship. It's a decision to say, Lord, it's yours. And so in our faith, we bring our bodies to God and say, Lord, I want your way. My life, my body belongs to you. And then from there, Paul begins to unpack what does that look like? Look at the next verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says this He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Paul uses two ideas here that really work together, but I want to talk about them separately. And the first is, he says, Don't be conformed to this world. And in that word "conform," he's using a word picture that in the Greek literally is describing a mold that someone would have put clay into or a soft substance and then pressing down the other half of the mold, they could have shaped something into a toy or a statue or an idol. And he's telling them that in this world, culture and society is pressing you into that mold and I am calling you to not be conformed to this way of thinking. So the way I would phrase it for you and I this morning is we've got to be willing to avoid the mold. Because whether we're consciously aware of it or not, you and I are being pressed. There is a society, a culture that, that conforms us into its way of thinking and doing things. The reality is that nearly everything you and I know and believe about our sexuality has been influenced or even created by culture around us. But most of us have never paused long enough to ask the question, why do I believe this? Is this even true? Have I been conformed to a mold from my society? And we need to expose those lies of where we've been conformed. And so as I I thought through this passage, to me, I see seven places where I think we are being pressed or conformed into a mold. And I want to challenge and invite you to think about, are any of these true of your thinking? Because my my warning or encouragement to you is some of these are very, very subtle. They work their way into our thinking, and before we realize that we're operating off of a mindset that is much less about God and faith than it is about what the world accepts to be true. So here are the seven that came to mind for me. Number one, where we're pressed to conform is the belief that sex equals identity that sex equals identity, that who I am is a measure of how much sex I have or how sexually appealing I am to others. And that if I lack those things, I somehow lack a sense of value or purpose or belonging. And so you see people that hunger for appeal or to be attracted to others because it makes them who they are. But God made you, God made your identity to be so much greater and higher than whether or not you have sex appeal to others. That who you are comes from him, and then out of that, our sexuality can flow to appropriate places, not to find identity that it can never possibly provide. So sex equals identity is the first place. The second way I think we're pressed to conform is the idea that I can't help what I feel. Well, I can't help what I feel. It's it's just natural. Maybe we hear something like that. But the truth is that what we feel, our urges and desires, are actually a powerful combination of both nature and nurture. That our family of origin, the context and culture in which we're born into and raised in, and the experiences we've had along the way, both things done to us and things done by us, have been shaping and deeply influencing our way of thinking. And brain research is actually coming out and confirming this over and over that the brain is malleable, which is a really fancy way of saying the brain can be shaped. So, your thinking about sex and sexuality has been shaped. And the good news about that is if it's been shaped, it can be reshaped. If it's been impacted, it can be renewed, which is exactly what Paul is saying in this word to us. So, do we buy into this idea that I can't help what I feel? The third way that I think we're being conformed to culture is this idea that everyone does it. Everyone does it. Can, can we just take a moment to be honest this morning? That phrase or excuse didn't work with mom and dad in junior high. It's probably no better now as adults. Am I right? Like how many of us went to mom and dad like, well, everybody else is going to the party. And what did mom say? If everyone else jumped off a cliff, would you do it too? Right? Like exposing, hey, that, that's not a good reason to do anything. And if it wasn't a good reason in junior high, it's not a good reason now. But I, I think we're given this sense of like, well, everybody's having sex. Or everybody looks at this stuff. Or it's just what people do. And it's like, that's a really lame excuse to build your life on. So let's not listen to it. The fourth place I think we're being conformed is the idea that I will always struggle. And to me, it's one of the saddest things I hear people express. It's like, well, this is just the way it is. It's the way men are. It's what women deal with. I'll always be that way. And the best thing you can do is just try to manage it and hope to get by. Like, really? When Jesus came and gave his life, when he died to set us free, and he promised we'd be free indeed, is that the kind of mentality he wanted us to live with? That? Well, I'm just going to manage the best I can. No. Freedom is possible. Change is possible. Uh, The fifth way I think that we're pressed to conform is the idea that I must have a sexual outlet. We have associated a sexual outlet with a basic human need. But could I let you in on a little secret this morning? If you don't have a sexual outlet, you won't die. I I know that's, that's not what we're presented with, but that's the truth, is that it is not a basic human need. We're pressed to conform. The sixth way we're pressed to conform is the idea that, well, no one is being hurt. Hey, as long as no one's being hurt, as long as it's consensual, as long as everyone's okay with it, then it's no big deal, right? And yet the reality is that if we were to go around this room and share our stories, we would hear that for many of us, our deepest pain is sexual in nature. One in three girls and one in six boys have been sexually abused by the age of 18. For some of you, that's your story of pain. Or it's that your mom and dad broke up over the affair and the infidelity. It's the relationship you had in high school or college that you've wished a thousand times you could go back to and undo. It's a choice you made that now has unraveled your life. Our sexual pain is wrecking lives, families, marriages. But the problem is we will say to ourselves, oh, no one's being hurt. No one is being hurt right up until the moment that it begins to destroy everything we hold dear. And I would present to you that that's how the enemy of our souls works. He tries to tell us it doesn't hurt right until the moment it's too late. Don't be conformed to a lie that says no one is being hurt. Because maybe this morning you would just start by saying, you know what? Even if I don't think anyone around me is being hurt, I'm being hurt. Because it's damaging my ability to have the kind of relationships and the kind of life I think God made me to have. And if you can start there by saying, I'm being hurt, then maybe you confront the lie and say, God, I'm hungry for a better way. The seventh and final way we're conformed or pressed is by a belief that says more sex equals more life. More sex equals more life. This idea that, that this free life and anywhere, anyone, anytime is, is this exciting, you know, awesome way to live. I mean, isn't that what movies and Hollywood portray to us? And yet the truth is, and stats and research research would suggest that those engaged in an anytime, anyone, anywhere kind of lifestyle are actually among the most depressed, sad, and confused segment in our entire society. More sex does not equal more life. More life Equals more life. And so Paul challenges. He encourages and calls us not to be conformed. But then the other half of the phrase. He says to be transformed. By a renewal of your mind. To be transformed into a new way of thinking, a new way of doing life. And when we expose the lies of how we've been conformed and pressed into an unhealthy cultural mold, then we can begin to renew our hearts and minds through an intentional process of exposing where the lies come from and then replacing them with the truth of God. Not just in altering our behavior, but in learning to do life differently. You know, several years ago, I was engaged in a pattern of running marathons, about one marathon a year. And my goal for many years was to break the three-hour marathon b- mark. Now, a professional guy just broke the two-hour marathon mark. So I'm, I'm only an hour behind him. But for me, the three-hour mark was the big deal. And in 2014, I did the Portland Marathon, and I finished in three hours and 24 seconds. And people say, they ask me, like, well, why didn't you just run a little bit faster? And I'm like, I was trying <laughs> the whole time. But because I was so close, I kept pressing in and training harder, but something started to happen. I began to get injured. First it was a hip, and then it was a hamstring, and then it was a knee. And, and every time I would recover, I, I'd, I'd take some time off, and I'd get better, and I'd press in again, and a new injury And finally, I went and started meeting with a physical therapist who was working with me. And something he said to me in the process really stuck with me. He said, Nick, if you keep running the way you've been running, you're going to keep getting injured in the way you've been getting injured. Do you hear me? In our lives, if we keep running the way we've been running, we're going to keep getting injured the way we've been injured. And many of us are kind of like me. We heal up a little bit and things get better and and we deal with the pain, but then we go back and we just keep doing life the same way and we end up in some of the same places. See, in my running, I'm actually having to learn to run with a different stride, to shorten it up and land differently on my foot and change my hip posture. And and it's, it's learning a whole new cadence, which has been very, very hard But it looks like a path that could lead to some new growth and change. And the same is true for you and I in our human experience. That if we just keep trying to do things the same way but do it a little bit better, we're going to end up in the same destructive patterns. We need to be transformed into a new way of doing life. And that's really the the punchline or the the point this morning is this, that we can experience a radical transformation in our sexuality through the life-giving plan of Christ when we walk in his way. That there is a promise of hope and freedom, but it's not just enough to want it really bad and to try really hard, and maybe this time I'll figure it out. There's actually a way in which we need to walk that renews our mind and, and addresses things on the inside. You know, when when my wife and I started this process of change, one of the things that, that I realized is that I really saw pornography as the problem. That if I could just deal with this problem, the rest of my life was pretty good. But as we got into groups and counseling, what I began to discover is that pornography wasn't the problem at all. That pornography was just one of the symptoms of much deeper issues I had in my soul. You see, I had learned to find my value and identity in performing well. And as I was successful and achieved, I would have a sense of worth and identity. But when I didn't feel successful and I didn't achieve, there were all kinds of behaviors that were coming out as a way to try to manage that pain or the unwanted emotions in my life. And so I could keep dealing with the symptoms over and over. But until someone helped me understand the root causes, things weren't changing. So what would it look like for you? What would it look like for all of us to enter into a process not of just trying to change a behavior, but looking to walk in a new way, to run with a new cadence? And that's the offer of hope. That's the offer of freedom that is ours in Christ. And the good news is that when we do this, when we walk in this new way, there's a new awareness that comes. Did you hear that at the end of Romans 12, verse 2, where he says, "Uh, Then you will know, or then you will be able to test and discern what the will of God is. What his good and acceptable and perfect will is. See, there's a a sequence to this. That Paul tells us if we will choose not to be conformed or pressed into the world, and will instead be transformed in our thinking, then we will begin to understand how good and perfect and pleasing the will of God is. See, that may be one of the challenges that you're facing is that when we're stuck here in a place where we're being conformed to the ways of the world and the thinking of the world is that sometimes the way of God doesn't actually feel like a better way. It feels religious or constricting or, or too disciplined like, well, this, there's excitement and fun and it's risky and I, I don't know if I want that. But Paul's actually explaining that very thing, that it's because we've been conformed, and so first we've got to come out of that and be transformed, and then we discover how good and perfect his way really is. It's a little bit like if I went to my youngest son, who's seven years old, and his name is Luke, and if I tried to tell Luke, like, man, uh, Luke, one day you are just going to love girls. You're going to want to be married to a woman. You're going to love kissing her. Well, how would Luke respond like, oh gross, dad, don't talk about that. But but I'm on the other side of that, right? I know that there's a different way and that when he gets here, he's gonna agree with me. And I, I can't hope for him to understand it now because there's some transformation he'll go through first. And it can be the same with the will of God, that if we're stuck in a way where we've become conformed and pressed in, we may not realize how good and pleasing and perfect the will of God is until we begin to be transformed. So Paul says, don't be conformed, but be renewed in your thinking. And then he goes on to really what is our application this morning or our next step. Like, what do we do with this? Look at what Paul says in Romans 12.3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. In other words, Paul's saying, have a, have a humble, sober opinion of yourself, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though we are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. I think as Paul is is instructing us not to be conformed, but to be transformed, he sees that the danger or the temptation is thinking, okay, I'm going to go do this by myself. I'm going to go get this figured out. And yet, we're members of a body. Each one of us not having all the gifts or all the wisdom or all the skill we need. And God, knowing that, put us into a body. He said, you're going to need one another. And this is such a huge danger, especially as it relates to our sexuality. Because by nature, our sexual issues isolate us. They leave us thinking, this is just me. It's my issue. I've got to figure out. I don't know if I can trust others. But the call here is a call into community to say, if we're going to experience a transformation in our thinking, we are going to need one another. And that's why the action step or what's next is to humble yourself to your community. And it takes a humbling to be able to come into a group to say, I I need help and to allow a group of others that are in the body to say, we're so glad you're here and you're not alone. So how could you step into community? I know here that at ACF, starting in January, there will be Conquer Series groups for men and Unraveled groups for women. And and it can seem like, oh, well, that's for those people that really need help. But I'm just going to figure this out alone. And Paul says, no. No, take a, a sober, humble opinion of yourself and be willing to recognize God made you for one another. And that in our places of struggle, in our places of brokenness, we need to be willing to get over this idea that I can work it out and figure it out myself. He gave us each other. So how could you humble yourself and step into community and be willing to say, I don't have it all figured out and allow others to say, we know, neither do we, but we're here to help each other. Because that's what these groups are all about. You know, our our God really is a God of transformation. He says in Revelation, Behold, I have come and I am making all things new. He is a God that takes the lost and makes them found, that makes the old and makes it new, that takes the dead and brings it back to life. He is a God of radical transformations. And he sees, he knows our sexual brokenness. He knows the places where we feel we're so far off from him that our thinking is so unspiritual and we worry that God is is discouraged or embarrassed and he's not, he's with us. And he's inviting us into a new way of living that can be totally different than what we've experienced before. And so would you come to a place in your thinking and of your believing that God wants to bring radical transformation And he can do it in your life, and he can do it in mine. Friends, this isn't the area that we have to leave separate from our faith and figure it out on our own. God is inviting every one of us to bring our sexuality to him, to find that he's good, that he's for us, and that a radical transformation is possible for every one of us. Let me pray for you this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are for us and that your plans are good. And so Lord, would you help us in the area of our sexuality to reattach it to our faith in you, to not leave this as some separate dark corridor of our lives that we feel like we have to figure out on our own, but that we would invite you in in a new way. Even more importantly, we would see that you're inviting us in to experience more of you in that place. So God, I pray that that ACF, that this would be a place where men and women know it's okay not to be okay, that they can come to you and together find hope, healing, and freedom. God, we thank you that that's what you do. You are a God of radical transformations, and so we bring you our life. We bring you ourselves, and we say, Lord, our hope is in you. Would you bring transformation, whether it's into our life, the life of a loved one, or into our family? God, would you bring transformation? And we'll give you the thanks and the praise as you do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.